Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Welcome to our podcast. Um, the end of a very, very busy week. Uh, lots of stuff going on um, all over the place, particularly in financial markets. And it just struck me this morning that 12 years ago, virtually this week, global equity markets bottomed out after the great financial crash. So March 2009 saw the low point of markets following that crash. And since then, we've got virtually uninterrupted, very, very strong gains in markets. So, for example, the S&P 500 in the States up by 473%. Uh, the German market up by 294%. Um, and even the FTSE in the UK, which was hampered by lots of uncertainty around Brexit over the last four years, still managed to gain 91%. So those are incredible market gains. And I guess in an environment where bond yields and official interest rates have been at very low levels, um, obviously, equity markets would look attractive in that sort of environment. Um, un unfortunately, for the, I think the early part of that period, a lot of investors, particularly smaller investors, would have missed out on those gains because there was a huge level of risk aversion following what happened between 2007 and 2009. Um, so, but I think a lot of people, you know, through their pensions or directly, have got on board have made significant gains. So after 12 years of such momentous gains, how do you view markets at the moment, Chris? You know, would you be nervous about where they go from here if you were somebody sitting on money at the moment about to invest? Uh, would you be attracted to equities at this juncture? Well, Jim, I would always be nervous about markets, whatever they've done. Uh, wherever they've come from. Uh, it's always right to have a very healthy 
skepticism and nervousness about what markets might do, particularly in the short term, because equity markets, all financial markets actually, but particularly stocks, can do anything to you in the short term. And the first thing to say is that those gains that we've seen since March 2009 remind us that being out of equity markets can be very, very costly. And if you'd missed particularly the early part of those returns, any idea of reaping long-term gains from investing in equities gets buried. If you miss those big turning points, you do miss an awful lot because the gains from equities are rarely very, very smooth. Uh, the other thing to say is that when constructing a, a narrative about what equity markets have done recently, uh, you're engaging in what um, some authors, Nicholas Taleb, you might remember, wrote a book called The Black Swan, yes. a very famous book yes. about talking about unexpected, unanticipatable events. And they do have an annoying habit of, of coming around to bite us. Um, and he also coined the phrase narrative fallacy because he said that what most people like me do when we start telling stories about what equity markets have done, particularly in the short term, um, are just storytellers. And we are um, constructing stories that may or may not have any connection with reality whatsoever. That said, I think there is something to be said for, for trying to understand why markets have done what, what they've done. Uh, that at least helps us, I think, to frame any discussion about what they might do. And as savers, and we're all savers, whether or not we have direct holdings in the stock markets, all of us through our pensions and other savings policies, one way or another, usually have some exposure to equity markets, even if we don't know about it, even via our state pensions. Even Ireland has a little state investment fund that is supposed to help out with future pensions. So all of us should be interested in them. Markets um, have had that incredible run since March 2009. And it's instructive to think about why they started to rise in March 2009 and the circumstances in which that happened and the narratives, the stories that people told. Because when they did start to rise in March 12 years ago, there was nothing, absolutely nothing by way of news flow to suggest why they did. Um, economies were still in great trouble after the financial crisis and uh, would continue to do so, actually, to be in trouble for quite some time. What equity markets did was what they always do, is that they try to look forward and anticipate the end of that economic trouble caused by the great financial crisis. And a lot of people at the time, 12 years ago, said that equity markets were rising on no news at all and that they would quickly fall back because the news flow, in fact, was so horrible. It wasn't to be. Those stories were wrong. And with the usual volatility, markets went up, as we know, um, for pretty much the last 12 years. There were ups and downs along the way, of course. Um, and that's the second thing to always note when talking about equities is that whatever you do, whenever you get in, even if you get in at the right time, you are going to experience periods where you're going to lose money. The markets will go down and you've got to be prepared for that. And if you're not willing to bear those losses, uh, then frankly, you shouldn't be in equities at all. Uh, unless you have access to legal information that enables you to, to gauge these things. Being a short-term trader is usually a recipe for losing money and being an investor where you are willing to hold for the longer term, then uh, you've got to be willing to go through periods of volatility. All that said, equities, as you say, have had 
a great time. Um, they've actually gone up this week, although over the last few weeks, they've been going up and down. Almost every day of an up day is followed by a down day and vice versa. And the, the one single thing that's driving stock markets is the behavior of another market, the bond market. We've done a podcast that's looked at that. And in that podcast, we promised to return to it. And uh, so, so it has proved today. The, the headline in the online edition of the FT this afternoon is that US bonds endure fresh bout of selling after storm sweeps the market. It's very rare that you hear the word storm uh, talked about in terms of, of the US Treasury market. It's an incredibly deep and liquid market. And bond yields, another form of interest rate, have gone up. Now, they've gone up this afternoon to 1.63%, up from about 1.53% the day before. To most ordinary people, that wouldn't sound like a lot. In the context of the Treasury market, it is. It's a big move. And it's come on top of similar big moves over the last few weeks, as markets, bond markets in particular, get worried about inflation. Now, you and I will talk about that as we have done before. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but there is a second big thing going on in equities, um, at least a second. There's probably more. But uh, the big one is that all of the stocks that have done spectacularly well in recent years on days like today when the bond markets are going up, stocks in the technology space, all the tech stocks, the household names that we know, plus an awful lot of names that we are less familiar with, are going down. As bond yields go up, these stocks are going down. And there are technical reasons for that. And there are sentiment reasons for that. The main one is that bonds, without getting too technical about it, determine all our asset prices um, from equity markets through to housing, through to anything else that we look at. Bonds are lurking somewhere, usually in the foreground, but certainly always in the background. And th these kinds of stocks that did incredibly well last year, the Apples, Microsofts, um, Amazons of this world, Netflix, the so-called FANG stocks, benefit enormously from lower bond yields for all sorts of reasons. So logic dictates that they go down when bond yields go up. And so it's proving at the moment. And in investing, we talk about in the jargon, various styles, very various methods by which people invest in equities. And the one method that has worked incredibly well in recent years has been to buy the FANG stocks. The second method has been something called momentum, in that you buy today what's been going up recently. And both these methods, uh, which have all sorts of different labels and make more or less sense, depending on what position you take on this, um, momentum investing and growth investing. These stocks are also, these FANG stocks are also called growth stocks because they're deemed to be valuable today because of the massive growth opportunities that some people think they offer in the future. They've done well as a result of lower bond yields, and they're not doing very well as a result of higher bond yields. But so-called value stocks, another group of stocks, old-fashioned names, names uh, from the old economy, if you like, things like airline stocks, car makers, even oil companies, things like those kinds of companies are doing relatively much better, where they've been a graveyard for investors for years. So there's something called a big stock rotation going on, and uh, that's attracted an awful lot of attention. And opinion is divided in the marketplace as to whether or not that's sustainable. But value investing, the sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, the sort of thing that Warren Buffett says that he does is finally having a day in the sun. Whether it turns into a week or a month in the sun remains to be seen, but it's certainly going on. But all of the action is being driven 
by these bond markets. And I suspect that that's going to be something going forward. So what do you think about inflation, Jim? Do you think inflation lies in all of our futures? Well, clearly, inflation is having a dramatic impact, well, a relatively dramatic impact in bond markets and as a consequence on equity markets, as you've explained these days. And it is particularly interesting to note in the United States, there is a marked divergence of opinion at this stage um, about the future of inflation. We have the former Treasury Secretary, Larry Summers, um, arguing that Biden's 1.9 trillion uh, fiscal stimulus package, which is um, almost over the line at this stage, that that fiscal stimulus will generate seriously destabilizing inflationary pressure. So he is certainly concerned. Um, and then on the other hand, you have Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, who said that the increase in inflation will be neither large nor sustained. You have Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, playing down concerns about inflation quite significantly. And indeed, if you look at the, the facts, uh, the personal consumption expenditure price index, which is what the Federal Reserve prefers to target rather than retail price inflation, that's currently running at about one and a half percent and has been there or thereabouts for some time or indeed lower. Um, they, the preference would be for a rate of around two percent. So in, inflation pressures have been marked by their absence over the last few years. Um, I kind of sense um, it's obviously only time will tell which of those views is correct. But my sense would be that there will be, you know, a reasonable uptick in inflation over the coming months for a variety of reasons. Uh, the fiscal stimulus in the system will definitely boost demand. Uh, there's still a lot of monetary policy stimulus in the system through quantitative easing and official interest rate levels. Uh, you also have this pent-up demand in the system, a lot of personal savings, um, a lot of corporate savings. So you could certainly see a lot of demand coming back into the market. And then, of course, um, if you look at what's happening on the oil price market, for example, oil prices today are more than 100% higher than they were this time last year. You know, they went over $70 a barrel this week. So, uh, those, so those factors will definitely feed into um, a bit of an uptick in inflation over the coming months. I suppose the big question is, how far will it go um, I don't know the answer. Uh, the second big question is, um, is it likely to prove temporary or will it become built into the system? And, you know, would we see a resurgence of inflation expectations, which has been a characteristic of the distant past? Um, I tend to be reasonably relaxed about it because if you consider all of the sort of structural global factors that were bearing down on inflation you know prior to covid-19 uh, you had you know globalization you had the, the reduction in trade union power the fact that economies virtually operating at full employment particularly the united states was not generating your what would have been in the past typical wage price inflation uh, you have you know ongoing incessant downward pressure on clothing and footwear prices on food prices and so on and indeed uh, the latest irish inflation numbers out over the last couple of days 
showed that we're continuing to see price depression in areas like that. So I, I don't believe those structural factors have gone away. And I tend to think that they will reassert themselves, um, you know, once we get through this temporary uptick in inflation. But having said all of that, uh, the reality is the markets are concerned about it at the moment. Yeah, I think you've just given a fairly orthodox economist view, if you don't mind me saying, that inflation isn't coming back because in the 1970s, the last time we had this high inflation problem, uh, trade unions were much bigger. There'd been, a, you know, the aftermath of the Vietnam War. There were two huge oil price shocks. There were all sorts of structural reasons why inflation, A, took off and B, took hold. And most economists say that none of those conditions that existed back then exist now. But playing devil's advocate for a second, Jim, to say, come on a second with respect to your relatively sanguine view of inflation, just think about the numbers. The US economy actually is doing fine. When you consider what it's just been through with respect to COVID, it's doing astonishingly fine. All of the short-term indicators suggest that it's growing. Um, it, it could well have a very good year, thanks to the stimulus, but it was going to have a good year. Anyway, since December, and we're only in March, Jim, something like 15% of GDP, 15% of GDP has been poured into the US economy via fiscal policy. First, Donald Trump did something in December, and now, as we've talked about several times, the 1.9 trillion Joe Biden package um, has amounted to an astonishing 15% of GDP. We've not seen fiscal expansions like this outside of wartime. And uh, I think that when all of this is added up, when you go back to what they did a year ago, because this is the week, the first anniversary in many, in many countries of the full onslaught of the COVID crisis, I think that the US will have done about 30% of GDP by way of fiscal pan fiscal expansion, most, if not all of which, is going to end up being financed by money printing. And we can bend over backwards and contort ourselves into all sorts of technical discussions about why that money printing, particularly when interest rates are zero, is not going to lead to inflation. But if you'd asked us this time last year, Jim, if a 30% money-financed money printing financed expansion in the budget deficit of the United States was not going to lead to any inflation, I think you and I would have fallen about laughing. And we are contorting ourselves if we argue it's going to be all right. Um, how can you not print that amount of money? Um, Milton Friedman famously explained the quantity theory of money in basic terms of too much money chasing too few goods. The US economy is doing very well, it's going to be put on fire by this kind of expansion. Because don't forget that the expansion that Joe Biden has signed this week, this 10% uh, or so of GDP on its own, he's planning to follow up later this year, as soon as he possibly can, with another one, another massive fiscal expansion. This one was all about handing cash to people and to companies and to states and to local governments. The next one is going to be about repairing America's roads, bridges, and other aspects of its rather crumbly infrastructure. Now, we call this podcast The Other Hand. On the one hand, that all sounds great because America's infrastructure does need rebuilding. 
but it's another fiscal expansion. It's pouring more oil on an economy that's already on fire. How can that not lead to inflation, Jim? Tell me that. Um, well, I, I, I guess um, if, if you think about the, the sort of stimulus you've spoken about and what our view would have been this time last year, but if we'd also known this time last year that the world economy was going to become enveloped, and particularly the US economy, in COVID-19 and everything that that resulted in, uh, you would have probably said, yeah, that's the sort of uh, stimulus response that's actually required in that sort of situation. Um, I, I, I still don't sort of buy the argument that this and a lot of this stimulus is temporary. OK, the 1.9 trillion, a lot of this is going to hit the system in the next 12 months and will peter out thereafter. So that doesn't suggest to me that inflation is going to become permanently embedded in the system. Um, but, you know, de definitely, I guess, um, as I said earlier, you will see um, an uptick in the short term. I think there's no doubt about that. Um, and I, we probably disagree slightly where it goes thereafter. But if you bring it to this side of the Atlantic and you look at the Eurozone and what's happening in the Eurozone in terms of growth, certainly um, none of those concerns, I think, would apply. It's very hard to see how inflationary expectations could get built into the European psyche. Uh, given the structural issues in the European Union. And indeed, what we do know is that all markets are interrelated. You know, the uptake in bonds in the States over the last couple of weeks has put some upward pressure on European bond yields. And in recognition of that, yesterday, the European Central Bank uh, pledged to speed up its bond purchasing you know, to deal with the upward pressure on bond yields in Europe. So in other words, um, the ECB announced last year a 1.9 trillion euro pandemic emergency purchase program. This is quantitative easing. And um, the view is that, well, sorry, what they have been delivering is effectively 12 billion euro of bond purchases every month. At the expectation following yesterday's announcement is that they're going to up that to about 20 billion. So that would suggest that the European Central Bank, um, bizarrely, I suppose, given their history, is not concerned about inflation, is more concerned about the impact on economic activity and indeed on government finances that an uptick in bond yields would have at this juncture. So I think there's a lot more relaxation in Europe. Um, but Chris, before I, I have actually, I'd just like to say, if you believe that the risks of inflation are so high, would you answer the question then that I asked you at the beginning? Um, if you had money to invest in equities at the moment, would you? Well, let me park that one for a moment. Kick classic economist kicking for touch. But I promise you I will return. Um, and I will continue to play devil's advocate just for a second to give you a flavor for why the bond market is in the United States is doing what it's doing. Why um, the Financial Times is describing it as a storm in bond markets. In January, um, just past, uh, retail sales, sales to consumers in the United States were seven and a half percent up on where they were a year ago um, in the previous January. So that's post-pandemic compared to pre-pandemic. Um, and that they're now 
US consumers as part of Biden's package, most of them are going to get another check for $1,400. What's that going to do to retail sales? It can only increase them and it can only put upward pressure on an economy, as I say, that's already uh, doing very well. I agree with you that that, that that stands in stark contrast. I mean, let's face it, Jim, Europe's hopeless. Europe is being absolutely hopeless with respect to this. Whatever you think of Biden's policy experiment, it is certainly one that has a lot of coherence in that both arms of policy, monetary and fiscal, are acting together. The European Central Bank is somewhat forlornly sat there doing as much as it possibly can to stimulate things and asking, demanding, Christine Lagarde is demanding that politicians in Europe do what Joe Biden is doing and spend some money for goodness sake. And frankly, they're uh, looking the other way and having a row about the AstraZeneca vaccine instead and not doing what, what, what they should be doing. What do I think? I think that, that we need very much to respect the bond market. And I do think that if it continues to deteriorate in the way that it seems to, then it is going to lead to trouble for equities. But going back to what I always say about the short term and what I've already said today about the short term, I've no idea what the stock market is going to do in the short term, but I'd have an awful lot of confidence that over the long term, it will continue to deliver what it's always delivered over the long term, which is decent, healthy returns, albeit with an awful lot of volatility. So I would say that there's a good chance that we are going to have some trouble in markets. So I'd be happy if I was that investor that you've asked me about sitting on cash to simply wait. Uh, for a bit and on days that we and when we have bad days to start putting money to work but remember that I'm assuming that you've also listened to what else I've said is that you're not investing for a short-term gain you are a proper investor and looking for the long term it's perfectly possible that we don't get any downdraft in markets so if you are sitting on cash that you don't need for a long time put some to work now and then put a, put the rest of it to work when we do have those bad days that's what I would be doing with my own money anyway. I must be very careful at this point. We must be very careful to say that none of this should is, is, constitutes investment advice. We're not allowed to give investment advice on, on these sorts of podcasts. So I'm saying what I would do, do with my own money. And I'm talking about markets as a whole. And I would never talk about individual, individual stocks. So, yeah, I think that we need to respect what the bond market is doing. We need to be concerned about it. I think the bond markets are right to be worried about the short-term uptick in inflation. Notwithstanding my playing devil's advocate about all of the numbers, I think the technical reasons that you have given for why we shouldn't be worried about longer-term inflation, I think they're right too. So I think we've got a short-term problem that will lead to short-term problems for markets. It could last all year. Um, hopefully, they'll last a shorter period than that. Um, but I would be confident that the right place for the long-term investor like me, um, despite my age, is that um, the equity market should be the place that you, you put your money. Where you, in the equity market you put your money is always an interesting question. Um, I think that, uh, that the United States versus the rest of the world is an interesting um, investment choice because the U.S., uh, because of those FANG stocks in particular, um, has what we call a valuation problem. It looks very expensive. Whereas the rest of the world, not so much. The trade-off, of course, is that the United States is probably the biggest growth opportunity. So there are reasons why it's more expensive. That's it. So I would think that things like um, emerging markets look interesting at the moment, even though I find Europe absolutely hopeless as a, a political and economic 
thought experiment, its, its equity markets are probably more interesting than its economy. So worth having a look at those two. Jim. Uh, so I guess, Chris, that for in investors, the, the old fashioned adage that you actually should understand your tolerance for risk and you should also understand your time horizon before you make any investment decisions. And of course, one of the big dangers I see out there is that in an environment where having money on deposit, particularly in a pension fund, is now costing you money because of management fees, uh, you know, yeah, you have got to put your money to work somewhere. So uh, difficult decisions. And we are, I think, entering into one of those periods of real, real market uncertainty uh, that could deliver us quite a bit of volatility over the coming weeks. Um, another big story, I think, over the last week or two um, has been closer to home. Uh, the revelations and the what we've seen happen in Davy Stock Brokers and the fact that yesterday it was announced that the firm is now being put up for sale. Uh, there was a story in the Irish Times the day previously that Bank of Ireland um, could be a potential buyer for uh, Davy Stockbrokers, having owned 90% of it um, up until, I think, 2006. Um, I absolutely, when I saw the headline that Bank of Ireland could be in the market to buy Davies, I was absolutely shocked. Um, I have to say I was shocked that the Competition and Consumer Protection Authority here allowed AIB take over good body stockbrokers because that just creates more concentration in the financial markets here. If Davies were to be allowed to take over um, Davies, sorry, Bank of Ireland was to be allowed to take over Davies, excuse me, and that would just create further concentration in the market, remove further um choice for the consumer and indeed two financial institutions would then basically control uh, personal financial transactions in this country. I think that's incredibly unhealthy. Um, I was somewhat, um, I suppose, my concerns were eased a little bit today by, you know, Rothschilds, Rothschilds, excuse me, are now handling sale of Davies on behalf of the firm. Uh, provided a majority of the shareholders agree to sell it. Um, so we may see some international players coming in looking at it. Uh, personally, I hope to God we get an external purchase of the firm. I would really hate to revert back to a situation where Bank of Ireland became the owner of Davies again, given everything else that's happening in our financial market here at the minute. I think the point you make about competition is a good one and that... At the moment, we know that the majority of banking services offered to the Irish consumer is really a duopoly, um, as other banks have either exited or are about to exit, um, and that that's not healthy in and of itself, and that has led to all sorts of discussion about why, for example, Irish mortgage rates are probably the highest in the EU, uh, despite um, negative effectively uh, interest rates um, supplied to them by the ECB, their profit margins are very, very high indeed. And if you add in stockbroking and asset management to these uh, companies, they will dominate the Irish domestic scene in, in a duopoly form. And I think the, the competition questions that you raise do need answering. What I don't know is, is whether anybody actually has the authority to tell Davy shareholders who to sell to. 
Um, that's a question of company law beyond my pay grade. I simply don't know. But I think the questions that you raise are interesting. But the, the issues and controversies surrounding Davy stockbrokers um, are, are, of course, interesting in their own right. Um, uh, in some ways, they were shocking. In other ways, they weren't. Because I talked about some good rules of thumb for markets is that equity markets, generally speaking, over time go up with a lot of volatility. They go up and down a lot, but generally the trend is up. Another rule of thumb for financial markets all over the world, not just in Ireland, is that from time to time, these sorts of scandals erupt. Misbehavior in financial markets seems to be something that goes back centuries, not just to the financial crisis. And that's why the, these companies are now more tightly regulated than ever. And it's, it's why the regulator, is, I presume, has done what they've done this, this week. Um, what will be interesting for any, anybody coming into um, Ireland financial services, whether it's into banking or stockbroking or, or anything, is, 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 is about culture and governance. And um, the, 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 these issues raise those sorts of questions about, about, about the culture and governance of, of some parts of the financial services industry. Um, I'm still actively involved in, in financial services in, in a part-time way. So the, so the issues of regulation and, and how closely watched firms are these days is, I think, a, a very good thing. And I have first-hand knowledge of it. But quite clearly, something went wrong um, a few years ago. I'm, I sincerely hope that it won't go wrong again in this way in the future. And I suspect it wouldn't because I think the regulator is more on top of these things. But it does speak to big questions about the culture of some firms around the world. Jim? Personally, I just found the revelations uh, out of Davies absolutely shocking because normally when you get these sorts of financial scandals, they're shrouded in complicated derivatives and so on. But this was a really straightforward transaction, um, easy for anybody to understand actually what happened there. Um, and it stinks to high heaven. There is no doubt about that. I suppose the more fundamental question is, how much damage does that do to the external reputation of Ireland? Uh, we were described back in the mid-2000s as the Wild West of financial services. So do you, do you think, as, as more of an external observer than I am, do you think that this has damaged the external reputation of Ireland, or does it matter? Those are two questions. Um, clearly, it does damage it to an extent. I think the typical somewhat jaundiced observer of global financial services would say pretty much what I've just said is that these sorts of things happen from time to time and have been happening for centuries. Um, financial scandals just keep recurring, which is why we, we, we keep on trying to more tightly regulate this, this sector of, of our economy. Um, uh, whether or not it, it's going to do permanent damage, which I think basically is, is your second question. Um, it, that will depend on what happens next. If the stables are seen to be cleaned um, via inquiries and other measures, and whoever ends up owning Davies, I presume um, one of the things that I do know is that whoever ends up being, being owned by Davies will have to go through a strict series of regulatory checks by the central bank. We know that one prospective purchase of the other main stockbroker was, um, uh, I think, thwarted by or, or, or just simply not allowed by the central bank for reasons that we that, that I don't think were made public. 
So the, the regulator, to an extent, has the power to approve or not any potential purchaser of Davies. And I think, I do think that the Irish regulator does actually have a good international reputation. So I think that stamp of approval, if and when it comes, will be very important because I would be very confident from first-hand experience of that regulator that they these days they do do a very good and very thorough job. Great, Chris. Um, I think we should wrap it there. Um, we will obviously return to these issues and more over the coming weeks because these are evolving situations and um, in future podcasts we will be addressing them. So we hope you enjoyed this podcast and we look forward to having you on board again. Thanks very much, Jim. Cheers. You You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening and we hope to have you on board again very soon.